Good morning, and welcome to Georgia Heart Grand Rounds. This program is provided by Georgia Heart Institute with support from our industry partners. The planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with commercial interests. The presenter has financial relationships and will disclose in his presentation. To claim CME credits today, answer the survey evaluation. The link will be put into the chat. If you have a question for the presenter, Please type it in the chat section and we will read it at the end. And now, Dr. Habib Samady, President of Georgia Heart, will introduce Dr. Jamie Burkle. Thank you very much, Suzanne. Um, Suzanne McNeil is our uh, educational coordinator um, and has helped organize this uh, wonderful series. Well, it, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our cardiovascular grand round speaker. Um, Dr. Jamie Burkle uh, is going to talk to us about cardiometabolic therapies. Um, Dr. Burkle received his medical degree at La Salle University in Mexico City, where he graduated with honors. He then completed internal medicine residency at uh, the famous Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami, uh, where he served as chief medical resident in 1996 and was granted the Howard Kane Resident Award of the Year and Teacher of the Year Award. As you all know, Miami was the hotbed of preventive cardiology all the way back to then. He then completed his cardiovascular fellowship at Mount Sinai and received advanced proctorship in echocardiography at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Additionally, he had a teaching position at uh, Mount Sinai in the transesophageal echocardiogram department. Um, Dr. Burkle specializes in cardiovascular prevention, lipid disorders, and cardiac imaging. He holds multiple boards, including internal medicine and every cardiovascular specialty known to mankind. Um, in addition, he is fellow of the American College of Cardiology and of the National Lipid Association. He's been an instructor for advanced cardiac life support, uh, to many physicians, nurses, and allied healthcare professionals uh, on the behalf of the American Heart Association. It's really a testament to his passion and his teaching abilities um, across the board. Um, he has published numerous scientific uh, journals, um, articles and journals, medical book chapters, as well as um, is an active principal investigator in numerous um, national and international clinical trials, mostly fo focused around his passion of preventive cardiology. Um, Dr. Burkle joined the Atlanta Cardiology Group way back in 2000 um, and then became one of the founding members of the Piedmont Heart Institute in 2007, um, where he served for 14 years as a prolific cardiologist and really a, a person that was sought after uh, across the greater Atlanta area for cardiovascular prevention. We are absolutely delighted that he joined the Georgia Heart Institute very recently um, as our lead preventive cardiologist and lipidologist. Um, now, if that's not enough, Jamie and his lovely wife, Christy Burkle, have five children um, and I just don't know how they do it, but we're absolutely delighted you joined us, Jamie, and to give this cardiovascular grand rounds. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Javi. Really appreciate the invitation. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We're going to be talking about today a very exciting topic, which is uh, cardiometabolic therapies. And um, these are my disclosures. 
So we're going to start by the definition. Cardiometabolic syndrome is a combination of metabolic dysfunctions, mainly characterized by insulin resistance, impaired glucose tolerance, dyslipidemia, hypertension, and central adiposity. It's important to recognize that 58% of patients with coronary artery disease have more than three metabolic risk factors in terms of the metabolic syndrome. Hypertension, dyslipidemia, and diabetes account for 92% of morbidity and mortality amongst coronary artery disease patients. This is a disease that peaks at the age of 50 to 59 in males and over the age of 70 in females. And these are patients that have key cardiometabolic risk factors, including visceral fat, insulin resistance, atherogenic dyslipidemia, including high triglycerides, low HDL, and small, dense LDL cholesterol, hypertension, glucose intolerance, including both impaired glucose tolerance and type 2 diabetes, impaired fibrinolysis, including increased levels of plasminogen activator inhibitor 1 and fibrinogen, these patients have chronic inflammation manifested as elevated high-sensitivity CRP. Many of these patients have the PCOS syndrome or polycystic ovarian syndrome with a decrease on sex hormone binding globulin and increased free testosterone. And many of these patients have also concomitant non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So if we put this all together, uh, from the multitude of risk factors that we know that increase cardiovascular risk, including smoking, hypertension, age, race, sex, family history, abnormal lipid metabolism, the presence of insulin resistance in the metabolic syndrome, whether you have that or prediabetes, diabetes, physical inactivity, overweight or obesity, significantly increase their cardiovascular risk. So when we deal with patients with a cardiometabolic syndrome, what are our treatment goals? First and foremost, uh, reduction of mortality and reduction of major adverse cardiac events. We need to concentrate on lipid and blood pressure control. We need to focus on organ protection, particularly kidneys and eyes. And finally, we're going to focus on glucose control and weight control. However, the most important factor for us cardiologists when dealing with these patients is apply what we've learned from large prospective randomized clinical trials, which now have instituted what is called evidence-based medicine for the management of patients with cardiometabolic syndrome. So if we focus on what large clinical trials have taught us, the major drugs that we have to use on these patients include ACE inhibitors or ARBs because the trials have demonstrated a reduction of 13 to 15% in all-cause mortality and 17 to 20% in cardiovascular mortality. Statins, going back to the 4S trial in the 90s, have shown a decrease in all-cause mortality from 32 to 34% and a reduction in cardiovascular mortality between 21 to 24%. This is the reason why all diabetics should be treated with ACE inhibitors and statins unless contraindicated. If we move forward now to the, la the past five years, two major drugs have, have made major advances in the management of these patients, and G these are the GLP-1 receptor agonists and the SGLT2 inhibitors. The use of GLP-1 receptor agonists in our patients with metabolic syndrome and diabetes have resulted in a 13 to 26% reduction in cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke. 
and introduction of SGLT2 inhibitors in clinical trials have resulted in a 17 to 38 percent reduction in cardiovascular death and a 7 to 14 percent reduction in cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke, making this, again, drugs that are key in the armamentarium of treatment of patients with metabolic syndrome and diabetes. So how did we get here? If we go back to 2008, following the um, much publicized cardiovascular safety concerns with rosiglitazone or Avandia, this drug, as you might remember, resulted in a significant increase in cardiovascular mortality, including heart failure-related hospitalizations. So in 2008, the FDA mandated that every single diabetes drug on investigation had to include a parallel arm for major adverse cardiovascular events on their clinical trials in order to demonstrate safety. And the upper limit of the 95% confidence interval for the hazard ratio had to be less than 1.8 for a pre-marketing study and less than 1.3 for post-marketing studies. So as a result, every drug in development since 2008 have studied cardiovascular safety. So it was really by accident that we learned that these drugs not only were safe for our patients with cardiovascular disease, but had a significant improvement in cardiovascular outcomes. So there are four new classes of anti-diabetic drugs, the TCDs or thiosolidinediones that end in glitazone, the DPP-4 inhibitors that end in glyptin, the GLP-1 receptor agonist that end in glutide, and the SGLT2 inhibitors that end in gliflozin. From these four classes of drugs, the last two have demonstrated clear cardiovascular benefits in large prospective clinical trials. So let's focus first on GLP-1 receptor agonists. There are seven GLP-1 receptor agonists that have been approved for the treatment of type 2 diabetes in the United States, and these include exenatide, liraglutide, lixisenatide, dulaglutide, semaglutide, oral semaglutide, and albiglutide. From all these, three have demonstrated improved cardiovascular outcomes. How do these wor uh, drugs work? They work uh, in the incretin system. That is, after we eat, the food reaches the small intestine. This triggers a secretion in GLP-1 in response to food, which has mostly three mechanisms of action. The first is uh, the level of the brain by decreasing appetite. The second is the slow gastric emptying. And the third and most important one is at the level of the pancreas, where these drugs stimulate insulin secretion and suppress glucagon secretion. All this benefits uh, will result in lower glucose levels, decreased appetite, and weight loss. So three major randomized prospective clinical trials have demonstrated benefits of GLP-1 receptor agonist in cardiovascular outcomes. The liraglutide trial was called the LEADER trial, demonstrated a 13% reduction in the primary outcome of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, or stroke, for liraglutide compared to placebo. The SUSTAIN-6 and the PIONEER-6 trials with semaglutide demonstrated a 26 and a 21% reduction, respectively, in their three-component maze of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal stroke. And finally, the HARMONY outcomes trial with albiglutide demonstrated a 22% reduction in the primary outcome of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, or stroke. So how, does, uh, how do these work, uh, uh, drugs uh, work? 
The mechanisms for cardioprotection include renal protection, lowering chronic inflammation, glucose reduction, and a reduction in ectopic fat deposition, which is known to affect insulin resistance and to associate with cardiovascular risk. These drugs are administered daily or weekly by injections with or without food. They're titrated for A1C reduction, but their cardiovascular protection effects are observed from the starting dose. These are the four most commonly used GLP-1 receptor agonists in clinical practice. I recommend my uh, referring physicians to familiarize with one of them, uh, dosing, uh, titration, and so on. So in summary, GLP-1 receptor agonists result in a 13 to 26% reduction in cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke in patients with diabetes and the metabolic syndrome. Moving on now to the SGLT2 inhibitors. We recognize these drugs now as the new statins because of their significant impact, not only in glucose control, but also an improvement in cardiovascular outcomes. Four GLP SGLT2 inhibitors have been approved for the treatment of type 2 diabetes in the United States, and these include empagliflozin or Jardians, dapagliflozin or Farsiga, canagliflozin or Invocana, and ertrogliflozin or Steglatro. How do these drugs work? So there is an SGLT2 receptor in the proximal tubule of the nephron that is responsible for greater than 90% of the renal glucose reabsorption. In other words, most of the glucose that reaches the proximal tubule is absorbed through this receptor. And just like the name says, sodium glucose co-transporter is in charge of reabsorbing both sodium and glucose. The sodium is absorbed and then through the sodium potassium ATPase is brought into the bloodstream as an exchange for potassium, whereas the glucose is absorbed through the glucose T2 receptor into the bloodstream. As you can conclude, inhibition of this SGLT2 receptor by an SGLT2 inhibitor will result in both glucoresis and natriuresis. So these drugs result in a significant increase in urinary excretion. The patients lose over 400 calories in the urine when taking these drugs. They result in natriuresis and as a result, intravascular volume contraction. They lower blood pressure. They contribute to weight reduction and to hemoglobin A1C reduction. All the things that we tell our diabetic patients should do. So there are three major drugs that have been investigated in large prospective clinical trials for cardiovascular outcomes. These are the AMPAREG trials with empagliflozin, the CANVAS trial with canagliflozin, and the DECLARE TIMI 50A trial with dapagliflozin. This is the AMPAREG trial with empagliflozin that demonstrated in the primary outcome of the three-point maze of cardiovascular death non-fatal MI and non-fatal stroke and resulted in a 14% reduction in this three-component maze. Most impressively, the key secondary endpoint of cardiovascular mortality alone demonstrated that addition of empagliflozin to uh, patients with type 2 diabetes uh, uh, compared to placebo resulted in a 38% relative risk reduction of cardiovascular death. 
this really shocked the investigators and the cardiovascular community in general because to this date, since the Empagliflozin trial was published in 2015, we have never seen a drug with such an impact in cardiovascular outcomes in cardiovascular medicine. The CANVAS trial with canagliflozin also demonstrated a significant improvement in death from cardiovascular causes in uh, non-fatal stroke and non-fatal MI, with all of them reaching statistical significance. And the declared TIMI-58 trial with dapagliflozin also demonstrated a reduction in cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization by 17%, a 7% reduction in major adverse cardiac events, and most impressively, the reduction in cardiovascular death, MI or stroke, and most important, importantly, cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization was significantly reduced with hazard ratios in the 1.65 range. So in summary, SGLT2 inhibitors result in a 17 to 38 percent reduction in cardiovascular death and a 7 to 14 percent reduction in the triple component maze of cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke, making these drugs key components in the management of type 2 diabetes. And uh, obviously, these drugs should be administered to all patients with type 2 diabetes on this contraindicated. However, the initial trial taught us that the benefits of these drugs go beyond cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke. In fact, these trials have shown us just like the uh, declared TIMI-58 trial I just showed you, a significant reduction in heart failure, even in non-diabetics, an improvement in renal outcomes, patients with chronic kidney disease, and even improved outcomes in patients with peripheral arterial disease or atrial fibrillation. So let's focus on heart failure now. So we know that these SGL22 inhibitors prevent the development of heart failure in type 2 diabetes according to the clinical trials but the question is, can they be used to treat patients with established heart failure? And the second question uh, behind this was, the benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors may be glucose-dependent, but can SGLT2 inhibitors be used to treat patients without diabetes? And with these two premises, two clinical trials were conducted, the DAPA-HF trial with dapagliflozin and the EMPERA-REDUCE trial with empagliflozin. The dapagliflozin trial, or DAPA-HF, included patients with symptomatic heart failure, a ventricular ejection fraction less than 40%, and an N-terminal pro-BMP greater than 600, with an exclusion criteria of a GFR less than 30, symptomatic hypotension or systolic blood pressure less than 95, or the presence of type 1 diabetes. And these are the results of the DAPA-HF trial addition of dapagliflozin to patients with type 2 diabetes compared to placebo resulted in a 30% reduction in worsening heart failure event and an 18% reduction in cardiovascular death. The key secondary endpoint of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization was reduced by 25% when adding dapagliflozin to uh, patients with heart failure with or without diabetes and you can see the curve separated early on the trial and remained separation for the duration of the trial. All-cause death was, re was reduced by 17%. The Emperor Reduced Trial, this trial was presented by Milton Packer at the American College of Cardiology meetings last year. 
Similarly to DAP-IHF, demonstrated that addition of empagliflozin to standard of care in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction resulted in a 25% reduction of the primary endpoint of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalizations. And these are the primary outcome right here of estimated uh, cumulative incidence of the primary endpoint was a reduction of 25%. And this is the first and recurrent hospitalization for heart failure outcome, which also resulted in a 30% reduction. As a result of these two large randomized clinical trials, the 2020 ACC AHA heart failure guidelines have, are now recommending the use of SGLT2 inhibitors to all our patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, defined as an EF less than 40%. And the way they describe their algorithm is you have to always start with an ACE, ARP, or an ARNI as your first line with an addition of an evidence-based beta blocker. And subsequently, you would add a mineralocorticoid receptor agonist for those patients who meet um, criteria or an SGLT2 inhibitor or diuretics for patients who have congestion, or hydralazine and nitrates for patients who are not at uh, target blood pressure or African-Americans, or finally, evabridine for those patients who have persistent elevated heart rate despite, despite maximally tolerated beta blockers. So these are now what our heart failure colleagues call the four pillars of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction treatment, defined as an ejection fraction less than 40%, all our patients with uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction should be on a RAS blocker, ACE inhibitor, ARB or ARNI, a beta blocker, an MRA, and an SGLT2 inhibitor. And we should strive to keep our patients on this quadruple therapy. But now the question is, what about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction? So the Emperor Preserved trial was presented at the American Heart Association meetings this past November was a phase three randomized double-blind placebo-controlled event-driven trial in which patients with uh, type 2 diabetes and non-type 2 diabetes, age 18 years or older, with New York Heart Association class 2 to 4, ejection fraction greater than 40%, uh, elevated anti-prone BMP, and structural heart changes documented heart failure with preserved ejection fraction within the past 12 months. Uh, patients were excluded if they had symptomatic hypotension or a GFR as low as 20 and were randomized to receive empagliflozin 10 milligrams a day versus placebo with a composite primary endpoint of time to first event or adjudicated heart, uh, cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization and key secondary endpoints of first and recurrent adjudicated heart failure hospitalization or a slope of change in EGFR from baseline. What the Emperor Preserved trial shown us was that for, for the first time, we have a therapy that is effective in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Demonstrated a 21% uh, uh, reduction in the primary outcome of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalizations. And uh, the preserved HF trial with dapagliflozin, which was presented at the Heart Failure Society of America last year, also uh, included patients with 
heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, that is ejection fraction greater than 40%. 162 patients were randomized to dapagliflozin. Uh, 162 were randomized to placebo. And the trial resulted in, a, again, significant improvement in their cardiovascular outcomes, starting with the Kansas City Quality of Life Questionnaire showed an improvement in cardiac symptoms, a decrease in cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure, hospitalization for heart failure alone, cardiovascular death, and all-cause mortality in patients with or without established cardiovascular disease. So again, these drugs are becoming now uh, key in our armamentarium for the management of patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction as well. Well, how about renal function? SGLT2 inhibitors have a significant impact in renal function and glomerular filtration rate and have significant hemodynamic effects, starting with physiological changes, including an um, increase in glucosuria and naturesis with a decrease in proteinuria, therefore renal protection long-term. They have significant glomerular hemodynamic effects, including an increase in the afferent arteriolar vasoconstriction, increase in tubular glomerular feedback, and most importantly, a decrease in the intraglomerular pressure, which preserve kidney function in the long run. And finally, has systemic hemodynamic effects, including lowering blood pressure, lowering plasma volume, lowering arterial stiffness, and possibly improved energy utilization. This is a meta-analysis published at the Lancet a couple of years ago that showed that SGLT2 inhibitors will actually prevent kidney failure in patients with type 2 diabetes. And the Forest Plus will show you that the major randomized clinical trials using these drugs, the Credence trial, declared TIMI-58, the CANVAS program, and the EMPAREG, including the three most commonly used SGLT2 inhibitors, have consistently shown a significant improvement in renal function when used long-term in patients with type 2 diabetes. And what we have observed with these drugs is similarly to an ACE inhibitor, when you start an SGLT2 inhibitor in a patient with CKD, you will see an initial drop in the GFR, which is expected as a result of the hemodynamic effects in the glomerulus. But subsequently, as you can see in the dapagliflozin uh, curve here in the DAPA-CKD trial, the renal function will be preserved in the long run, as opposed to patients on placebo in the red, because you can see that they experience a progressive decline in renal function. And I'm telling you this because it's important uh, for you to know that you should expect to see a slight drop in the GFR when you start these drugs in a patient with CKD, and you should not stop the drug as a result, but just monitor them because in the long run they will experience the benefit. These are the DAPA-CKD trial outcome results by baseline cardiovascular disease, the primary endpoint of the DAPA-CKD trial, or dapagliflozin in patients with CKD, showed that the primary endpoint of a GFR decline greater than 50% end-stage kidney disease or kidney or cardiovascular death was significantly improved when using dapagliflozin compared to placebo in both patients with or without cardiovascular disease. And the key secondary endpoint of heart failure hospitalization or cardiovascular death was also decreased in both patients with or without established cardiovascular disease. Similarly, the EMPAR-REG trial showed that addition of empagliflozin to patients uh, with chronic kidney disease resulted in a slight drop 
in GFR at first, followed by stabilization of renal function in the long run, compared to a progressive decline in renal function on patients who are on placebo. And now there's an ongoing AMPA kidney trial, which is a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial of empagliflozin versus matching placebo in 6,000 patients with chronic kidney disease with or without diabetes. It will continue for about three to four years and will assess uh, if empagliflozin reduces the risk of kidney disease progression or cardiovascular death. The results of this trial will be uh, presented in October of this year. Moving on to atrial fibrillation, we now have significant uh, um, evidence that addition of SGLT2 inhibitors will result in a significant reduction of new onset atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter. This is data from the declared TIMI-58 trial with dapagliflozin that showed a significant 19% reduction in new onset atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter when administered these drugs to patients with diabetes. And once again, the forest plots show that subgroup analysis show that this decrease in the incidence of new onset AFib or A-flutter was in independent of whether the patient had a history of this in the past, presence of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or pre presence or absence of heart failure. All patients benefited the same. So the question is, how can they have multiple cardiovascular benefits? Well, we have three proven mechanisms. One is volume contraction. These drugs, like I said, result in naturesis, and as a result, a volume contraction, therefore preload reduction. These drugs clearly lower blood pressure as a result of afterload reduction. And there's also a significant decrease in glomerular pressure, which sends signals to the brain to decrease sympathetic uh, outflow. And there are three mechanisms under investigation. One is uh, proposed by Ferranini et al. from UT San Antonio. He is considered the father of myocardial energetics. And his research, very interestingly, has shown that SGLT2 inhibitors actually induce mild ketosis. And ketosis is good for the body. It increases the levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate that turns out to be a better fuel to myocardium than glucose. Then you have um, Subod Verma and investigators that uh, propose that the mechanism by which SGLT2 inhibitors provide cardiovascular benefit is due to volume contraction and an increase in erythropoietin release. And this increase, uh, increases hematocrit by 2 to 3%, resulting in improved oxygen delivery. And then we have uh, David Cherney from University of Toronto and his group of, of investigators that say that it's all about the kidney that the renal protective effects result in improved hemodynamics, vasodilation, lower intravascular volume, and therefore improvement in cardiovascular uh, morbidity and mortality. Finally, recently, it has been shown that SGLT1 receptors are found in the myocardium, and these promote oxidative stress, apoptosis, and fibrosis, very similar to aldosterone. So possibly, possibly, uh, possibly inhibition of SGLT1 and SGLT2 receptor will result in improved cardiovascular outcomes as well. So in summary, we have all these potential direct and indirect effects in the cardiovascular system. We have a decrease in the sodium-hydrogen exchange. We have a decrease in the calcium calmodulin protein kinase 2. We have an increase in mitophagy and autophagy. And very importantly, these drugs have shown a significant reduction 
in the NLP, uh, NLRP3 inflammasome, which you might remember the Cantos trial with canicunimab, uh, which is a drug that um, act actually activates the NLP3 inflammasome by reducing interleukin-6, a very potent pro-inflammatory drug, and is associated with improved outcomes in cardiovascular disease by decreasing inflammation. Indirect effects of these drugs, improve renal function, increase provascular progenitor cells, increase epoietin, decrease sympathetic nervous system activation, and improve energetics. All of these effects appear to be the reason why these drugs are so beneficial in the cardiovascular system. So how are these drugs dosed? Most of these drugs are administered once daily, with or without food, and the titration of the dose is for A1C reduction, but not for cardiovascular protection. In other words, you will experience the cardiovascular protecting benefits from the starting dose. These are the three most commonly SGLT2 inhibitors used in cardiovascular medicine, empagliflozin at doses of 10 or 25 milligrams a day, dapagliflozin, 5 or 10 milligrams a day, and canagliflozin, 100 or 300 milligrams per day. The most common side effects observed with these drugs are hypotension and volume depletion. Like I said, these drugs clearly cause natural recess and volume contractions, so be very careful with your patients who have borderline blood pressure or are orthostatic in the office. Prerenal azotemia can be observed if the patient does not adequately hydrate when using these drugs. And because bacteria love glucose, urinary tract infections and vaginal yeast infections are commonly seen not commonly seen, but are seen as potential side effects in patients with uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, particularly the poorly controlled diabetics. In uncircumcised males, candida albaninitis has also been observed, stressing the importance of uh, hygiene. These drugs, it's important to know, do not cause hypoglycemia by themselves unless they're combined with a sulfonylurea or insulin. So it's important to educate our patients and explain to them why we as cardiologists are adding another, quote, anti-diabetic drug to their armamentarium because of their cardiovascular benefits. It's critical to stress hygiene and hydration. It's important to also consider adjusting diuretic doses. In my practice, I typically lower their baseline diuretic doses in half because these drugs will have additional diuretic effect. You want to also communicate with primary care doctors or endocrinologists and clarify that you're not taking over the management of diabetes. That continues to be the responsibility of the primary care physician or endocrinologist. And you want to monitor GFR every three to six months, especially when starting therapy. So who are the patients that benefit the most? These are all diabetics with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease you should prescribe these drugs unless contraindicated. Most heart failure patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and an EGFR now initially recommended greater than 30 percent, uh, greater than 30, but now we can go as low as uh, 20. Obese patients or patients who have significant fluid overload or edema. These are the patients who benefit the most of SGLT2 inhibitor therapy. In which patients we should avoid prescribing this? those patients who have marginal blood pressure, or those patients who are orthostatic or volume depleted, because obviously these therapies will just exacerbate that. So this is a recommended uh, protocol that we want to institute in our um, um, group. First, we start with, does the patient have established, established ASCVD? 
And remember, this can be the presence of coronary, cerebrovascular, or peripheral vascular disease. If the answer is no, then defer the treatment of diabetes to PCP or endocrine. Or does the patient have at least one of the following, dyslipidemia, hypertension, or tobacco use? If the answer is no, defer to PCP or endocrine. If the answer is yes, we're going to look for any contraindication for SGLT2 inhibitor. Is the patient allergic to this? Does the patient have type 1 diabetes? Does the patient have DKA, hypoglycemia, a GFR less than 30, history of necrotizing fasciitis or recurrent UTI or genital yeast infections, or presence of hypertension? If the answer is yes to any of these, you want to avoid an SGLT2 inhibitor. If the answer is no, you should immediately prescribe an SGLT2 inhibitor, empagliflozin, dapagliflozin, or canagliflozin, which have all demonstrated improved cardiovascular outcomes. Additionally, you may consider adding metformin. And finally, consider important points, including assessment of volume status, avoid if the patient is volume depleted. I routinely do orthostatics in my uh, office before prescribing these drugs to make sure these patients are not volume depleted. You educate a patient on hygiene and hydration, key of this too, because uh, that will prevent complications. You want to adjust diuretic doses. Uh, like I said, I typically drop their diuretic doses in half to prevent volume depletion. And you monitor GFR every three months. Finally, consider optotracing the dose if additional hemoglobin A1C reduction is desired. So as closing remarks, I recommend to all my cardiology colleagues to take ownership. Remember, these are cardiovascular drugs with anti-diabetic effects and not anti-diabetic drugs with cardiovascular effects. Clinical trials have clearly shown that. Remember also that patients see a cardiologist four times more often than their endocrinologist. I recommend uh, all of you guys to familiarize with one or two drugs from each class, dose, titration, etc., and get comfortable prescribing. And if in doubt, ask, but don't withhold these life-saving drugs. And I want to thank you for your attention. Fantastic, Jamie. What a wonderful overview of cardiometabolic therapies. And, you know, uh, when you hear that title for cardiovascular grand rounds, you know, initially you, you wonder if you're, you should be in endocrinology or diabetic grand rounds. But I think you've, you've certainly convinced me and many of our viewers that we have to take ownership of this. Well, um, maybe uh, what I could do is ask uh, Suzanne McNeil, um, if there are any questions from the audience, Suzanne. Yes, we do have a few questions in the chat. First question, for healthy younger patients but with high family risk factors, what age do you recommend they be evaluated and proactively treated? Yeah, so um, that's a very good question. What I recommend uh, is everyone start with your 10-year ASCBD risk calculation. So I hope that all my colleagues have that app on their phone. And you calculate that as your first step because if your patient has a greater than 20% 10-year risk of ASCVD events, they should aggressively be treated with secondary prevention factors, including uh, aspirin, a statin, and a cardiometabolic therapy if they have diabetes or the metabolic syndrome. For patients less than 5%, then you can probably just uh, stick to lifestyle modifications. And for those patients between 5 and 20%, what we use as the tiebreaker is a CT calcium score. 
Thank you. We have another question. Mm -hmm. In clinical practice, what side effects, if any, do you see in patients taking SGTL2 inhibitors over a long period of time? Yeah, thank you for that question, very important. So the most common side effect we see is hypotension uh, and a drop in the GFR initially. So for the hypotension, it's very important that you stress the patient to remain well hydrated, to uh, make sure uh, you lower the diuretic doses in half if they are on diuretics. It's sometimes necessary to even adjust antihypertensive therapy to prevent hypotension. So I try to avoid it in my patients who have systolic blood pressures below 100. Um, once you reevaluate them after starting therapy, after three months, they come back to the office and you want to check orthostatic vital signs. You want to do a GFR or send a BMP to make sure there's no significant drop in GFR. You expect a mild decrease in the GFR. And very importantly, you screen for urinary tract infections or vaginal yeast infections. So as a cardiologist, I never thought that I would ask my patients if they were circumcised or not. But now I'm asking them that because, again, we've seen cases of candidal balanitis on our uncircumcised males who have started these therapies. Thank you. A few more questions. Can you comment on the anti-inflammatory effects of these drugs and their role, if any, in treatment of patients with significant inflammatory disease states? Yeah, great question. And there's actually a lot of research in this area because of the significant effects on, like I was saying, the NLP3 inflammasome reduction. And interleukin-6 and CRP and many other markers of inflammation are significantly decreased with these drugs. So there's a lot of ongoing clinical trials on, in the rheumatology area now on SGLT2 inhibitors to see if these drug will, drugs will have an impact in chronic inflammatory states. So we know that clearly they reduce CRP and other uh, um, MPO and other uh, inflammatory markers in cardiovascular medicine. But the question is, can, also, uh, can this drug also be used in patients with chronic inflammatory conditions that will have additional benefits? So the answer to that, that question is stay tuned because there's a lot of data coming out of that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Our, oh. I, I was going to say that this is, these are wonderful questions. Um, I want to just take a step back and ask you the question as a cardiologist. Um, it, is, it is sort of um, almost dizzying the number of various therapies out there, um, the cost of some of these therapies, um, as well as the potential for drug-drug interactions as you increase therapies. Um, so um, is there is there some advice you have for people that want to embark on this journey that it sounds like we all have to embark on. Um, obviously, listening to Grand Rounds, getting educated on it, but um, how do you, is there, is there an age cutoff that you rethink these drugs or give us some advice on how you clinically approach mm -hmm. this myriad of challenges? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so thank you for the question. And obviously, polypharmacy is a, a very uh, important uh, issue that we're dealing with on our daily, uh, in our clinics on a daily basis. And this is something that we as cardiologists, we need to use our judgment, right? And uh, so the perfect example is SGLT2 inhibitors. The impact on cardiovascular event reduction is so strong that should really take priority over other drugs. So many of my patients that come see me for cardiovascular prevention who are diabetics are taking three or four other glucose-lowering drugs, and none of them have cardiovascular protective benefits. They're all just lowering a number, but in the long run, they're not getting any benefit. 
So I start by having a, a, a wide open communication with the primary care physician or the endocrinologist and explain to the patient that some of these drugs need to be changed and perhaps start by eliminating the non-life-saving drugs and simplify the regimen to them. So rather than taking an insulin secretagogue, esophenidorrhea, insulin, and those drugs that all they're doing is lowering a number, replace those by SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 receptor agonists that have demonstrated cardiovascular outcome benefits. So start from there. Then evaluate your other drugs, right, because polypharmacy and cost is the other issue. So uh, I was just showing you, for instance, in the heart failure world, all our heart failure colleagues uh, are trying to push hard the use of SGLT2 inhibitors, again, because the data on DAPA, HF, and Emperor Reduced are so strong that we've never seen drugs having this impact. In fact, the data is even stronger than the use of ACE inhibitors. So you could make a point of saying, well, if these drugs are more powerful than ACE inhibitors, why don't we start with an SGLT2 inhibitor upfront and a newly diagnosed heart failure reduced ejection fraction patient? And the answer is yes, probably we should be doing that. So the idea here... Although, can I ask mm -hmm. you a question? The trials were, mm -hmm. that were done were all in addition to ACE inhibitors Correct. and beta blockers. Correct. They're on top of maximum uh, medical yeah. therapy, which in this case are ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, and, and an MRA. But the question is, okay, but if you have a patient with new onset heart failure yeah. and say that they have marginal blood pressure, are you going to start all full drugs at the same time, or are you going to start one or two at first and, and up-titrate and adjust? So most of our heart failure colleagues would recommend start one or two at first to prevent hypotension, side effects, and so on. So the question here becomes, okay, so do you start with, an, uh, with a RAS blocker? you start with a SGLT2 inhibitor? So it's, it's interesting the, the way the par this paradigm is, is changing, is shifting. So we'll see very soon. I mean, ideally, yes, you want to have these patients on quadruple therapy, right, like the four pillars we were talking about. Yeah. But uh, in clinical practice, you should really pick and choose which drugs have the greatest impact in the cardiovascular outcomes of your patient. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Really, really good practical advice. Suzanne, any additional questions from the audience? Yes, we've had several questions in regard to insurance coverage. Can you comment on insurance coverage for SGLT2 inhibitors? Yes, so um, most of these drugs, actually, uh, when you prescribe them, they will offer you a $10 copay for a 90-day supply. So for your commercial patients, uh, it's very affordable for $10, 90-day supply. For Medicare Part D patients, obviously there are so many and so variable that uh, it really depends on the particular plan of the patient for prescription coverage. But in my experience, uh, the cost of these drugs have dropped significantly over the past two years as a result of A, new clinical data on, uh, coming out on clinical trials, and B, insurance companies and Medicare payers realizing the importance of these drugs as preventative for heart failure hospitalizations and recurrent heart failure hospitalizations, which, as you know, is our number one DRG and a big problem here nationwide. So coverage is much better for Medicare Part D patients. In my practice, their maximum copay or their average copay is anywhere between $50 to $120 a month. Very, very good practical advice. Mm -hmm. um, and as you all know, Dr. Antonio Rios is our uh, head of population health at uh, Northeast Georgia Health System, and um, he's really passionate in teaching us about kind of changing our paradigms as physicians and advanced providers to really think of the continuum of healthcare. And you sort of touched on the cost aspect, but the idea of preventing this level of cardiovascular death, mm -hmm. hospitalizations, et cetera, could have an enormous impact 
on our healthcare Absolutely. costs. Absolutely. And so it may be a, an investment uh, worth, you know, working Absolutely. on. Yeah. The question is who foots the bill? That's right. And, and I'm sure that's a complicated question, and that's where all the insurance companies and third-party payers and Medicare are seriously looking at that. Um, um, Jamie, talk to me a little more um, about the GLP-1 agonists, mm -hmm. because it seems like you kicked off your wonderful talk with that, mm -hmm. and then the SGLT-2 inhibitors really kind of stole the show. Yes. Um, so, okay, so we talked a lot about what sorts of patients, and I know you covered this, but just to mm -hmm. summarize, what sorts of patients would you reach out for a GLP-1 agonist? Uh, easy answer. Those who have a contraindication for an SGLT-2 inhibitor, or an allergy. Uh, and the reason is, these are by far the two most important cardiometabolic therapies we have in cardiovascular medicine right now, but the winner consistently is the, the SGLT2 inhibitor. And all clinical trials have demonstrated a greater impact in cardiovascular morbidity and mortality uh, compared to the GLP-1 receptor agonists who come in second, but still better than metformin and any other glucose-lowering agent out there, right? So I use GLP-1 receptor agonist only when there's a contraindication for an SGLT2 inhibitor or when my patient has a demonstrated uh, allergy to it. So uh, otherwise, my SGLT2 inhibitor is always going to be first line, again, because of a greater magnitude reduction in CV events. Okay, and this is for, and I was thinking that you could uh, take your patients and mm -hmm. put them into the secondary prevention bucket mm -hmm. and the existing heart failure with reduced DF bucket mm -hmm. and then just the type 2 diabetics that you're seeing. Correct. So for all three of those buckets, you would start with an SGLT2 Absolutely. inhibitor. Absolutely, because again, the data is very consistent. So yeah. if, if I was to summarize this, yeah. I would say, so start with your diabetics. So if you are a cardiologist, you see a diabetic, first thing in your mind should be, well, I'm a cardiologist, so patient likely has established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease of some sort, right? Peripheral vascular, cerebrovascular, coronary. Uh, so that patient must be on an SGLT2 inhibitor unless contraindicated, period, end of story. Now for your heart failure reduced ejection fraction patient, if they are already on triple therapy, a beta blocker, a RAS blocker, and an MRA, then consider using an SGLT2 inhibitor so that you have the four pillars and then you can provide that additional cardiovascular benefit. For your HEFPEF patient, this is really, truly the only class of drugs that have proven benefit. All the other drugs that we've used in HEFPEF patients really have very weak data. The TopCat with uh, a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist was the closer to get to, to reach statistical significance, but di didn't really reach statistical significance. So we should start with SGLT2 inhibitors in our HEFPEF patients and then add the other drugs as needed. So, again, um, we want to use always the, the drugs that will provide you with the greatest cardiovascular benefit up front and then add on other drugs that will have a significant or powerful effect. Okay. So uh, I, I would love if we had our active audience, which we're going to restart our cardiovascular grand rounds in person as soon as we can with the pandemic. Um, but if I were to wager a bet, um, I would say the majority of our cardiovascular doctors and APPs, minus maybe the heart failure doctors, and, and, and also some of the prevention experts, don't have a lot of experience with these drugs. Mm -hmm. So um, you've given us a lot of practical tidbits. You know, how do you simplify, how do you think of these patient groups? Now, you did also say that there are three different uh, drugs that have had cardiovascular benefit. Um, so 
what recommendations do you have? You said find one, get comfortable with the dosing, like anything we take on. Um, can you give us any more advice on that um, in terms of how to pick and mm -hmm. and then how to get comfortable with dosing and so forth? That's right. So uh, I tell my referring doctors and my cardiology colleagues, pick one drug, just one, familiarize with the starting dose and the titration, and start prescribing it and get comfortable prescribing it. Uh, remembering also educating your patient is key, telling your patient, A, hydration, hygiene, hydration, hygiene. It's very, very important to stay well hydrated. These drugs will, can actually dehydrate you if you don't uh, drink enough water. And practice hygiene, report symptoms of urinary tract infection early. That's really the extent of your education you're going to do because you're not taking over anti-diabetic uh, diabetic management. You're only providing them with the cardiovascular protective benefit that they need. As a cardiologist, that's our number one responsibility. And that's why I started out with my first slide saying, first and foremost, when treating our patients with diabetes or metabolic syndrome, the first responsibility for us is reduction of cardiovascular mortality and reduction of MACE events. So you have to start with that, get comfortable prescribing it, and you'll see that it's not that difficult. I mean, there are very few drugs in cardiovascular medicine have this side effect profile. They're really very safe drugs. Start with, like I said, get familiar with one drug, get familiar with the starting dose, and we'll bring them back in three months. Recheck orthostatics, ask them about UTR or yeast infections, and get a GFR, as simple as that. And then, um, the, I know you mentioned this, but just to reiterate for the clinicians that want to embark on this journey, they're subcutaneously injected or oral? So the, um, all the SGLT2 inhibitors are oral, once daily, with or without food. That's simple. And you, the only way you, uh, there's, you stay at the starting dose, and I typically let the primary doctor and the endocrinologist up-titrate if additional A1C is desired, right? So, but that's in their field. That's for just A1C reduction. My responsibility is reduction of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. I stick to the starting dose, period. For the GLP-1 receptor agonists, the only one that is orally available is oral semaglutide. All the others are injection once a week. And it's a small subcutaneous injection. Most of these patients are used to injections because of the finger sticks or insulin anyway. And it's very well, they're very well tolerated as well. Great. So um, let's think, um, and again, I think uh, I'd like us to think for the next two minutes about diabetics, mm -hmm. right? Because most clinical trials and in our practice, we know that diabetics probably are a third mm -hmm. of our patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's a huge chunk of our patients, and obviously their outcomes are so poor. And their outcomes are driven by cardiovascular mortality and renal dysfunction and mm -hmm. stroke. So if you have a diabetic in your office mm -hmm. that is coming to you maybe with metabolic syndrome um, but does not have established known cardiovascular or cerebrovascular disease. Mm -hmm. So my first question to you is, do you actively screen them with imaging for uh, vascular disease? And if so, what's, what's your go-to yes, screen? Yes, thank you for your question. So I have to say that uh, if you have a patient that has been diabetic for more than five years and you think that the patient does not have ASCBD, it's because you haven't dug deep enough. Most of the patients that have type 2 diabetes for over five years will have some form of subclinical atherosclerosis. So these are the patients that I screen with carotid ultrasounds, with CT calcium scores, and with ABIs. And I'm going to say that greater than 75% of them will come back with an abnormality on any of those three. They will show some carotid plaque, perhaps not critical stenosis, but they will show some carotid plaque, 
they will have probably an elevated calcium score above 100, which is really now in the second nerve prevention level, or they might have an abnormal ABI. So if I have any of these three, I automatically move that patient from a primary prevention to a secondary prevention strategy. So I'm going to be focusing more on a stronger LDL reduction, stronger A1C, better blood pressure control, and antiplatelet therapy. Fabulous. Um, talk to me about, we haven't touched on LDL reduction much, because mm -hmm. that's passe, that's mm -hmm. old news, right? But talk to me a little bit about where you are with that. Uh, you've got, let's say you've got your diabetic that you've looked at, let's mm -hmm. say their calcium score is 300, mm -hmm. and they may have a little carotid plaque. Um, their maybe hemoglobin A1C is 8, mm -hmm. um, and, and say their LDL is 140. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you approach the sort of lipid aspects of that? So, Habib, something we've learned from recent clinical trials is that um, we used to say uh, LDL lower is better. We no longer say that. We say LDL lowest is best because we have not reached the point where further LDL reduction will not result in additional cardiovascular benefit. So, um, in that regard, I, in my practice, I have just three strata. I want in my first strata, which is LDL below 100, I want all my patients, irrespective of other side effects, I mean other uh, concomitant uh, comorbidities, to be an LDL below 100. Now, patients with stable CAD or diabetics or multiple risk factors, they should be on an LDL below 70 goal. Okay? And finally, the third group is the patients that have a recent MI or patients that have recurrent events. For those, the LDL goal should be less than 55. So moving back to the diabetics, I treat them as a secondary prevention because pretty much their outcomes, just like you said, are very similar to patients with established ASCVD, prior cabbage, prior PCI. So those patients should be treated to an LDL below 70, and I treat them with, obviously, first statins at the maximally tolerated dose. But something that we need to learn as cardiovascular specialists is that we should be using additional drugs for LDL lowering because it turns out that only about 40% of patients who take statins reach LDL goal, less than 70. So 60% are still, they, they take their statin, but they're still not at goal. So we need to use secondary agents the same way we do with hypertension. We have the patients on two or three drugs. The same thing we do for diabetes, there are two or three drugs. turns out when it comes to lipids, we only use statins. And for that reason, we think that we're doing our job, but we're not. We're falling short. So I encourage everyone to use combination therapy with ezetimibe, benpedoic acid, PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies, and now the PCSK9 silencers that have been recently approved by the FDA. Wonderful. Well, listen, there, there's so much more that we can discuss mm -hmm. and talk about. Um, Suzanne, we have a few seconds left. Any one last question from the audience? One last question. Related to some points that you just recently made, are PCP and endocrinologists regularly prescribing SGLT2 inhibitors, or should patients with type 2 diabetes also be seeing a cardiologist regularly for yes. evaluation? Yes, thank you for that question. So um, the short answer is no. Unfortunately, neither PCP nor endocrinologists are using enough SGLT2 inhibitors, so that falls into our area. Cardiology should be actually the leaders and the owners of these drugs because of the major cardiovascular benefits. Uh, but we are as a team, right? So we should work as such, and we should communicate with our PCPs and endocrinologists and making sure all of us are on the same page, making sure they, uh, we make it clear to them we are not taking over management of diabetes. This is a historical issue because if you ask 
nine out of ten cardiologists will be hesitant to use these drugs because of the uh, concern of hypoglycemia, right? And we were taught this in training. No, 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 no. This just leave the diabetes management to the endocrinologist. But these drugs truly don't cause hypoglycemia unless you use along with insulin or a secretagogue. So um, yes, the short answer to your question is unfortunately. Uh, the PCPs and endocrinologists are not prescribing this enough. They should definitely see a cardiovascular specialist so that we take ownership. Well, with that said, I, I do want to put a plug in for our soon-to-be-launched uh, wellness prevention and lipids metabolic uh, mm -hmm. center mm -hmm. that um, yourself and Dr. Devoki, Dr. Subramanian, many of our wonderful cardiologists are going to be involved with Dr. Wynn. Um, and I just want to thank you for really uh, an incredible talk. I know that not only as clinicians, but as patients, we all want to come see you. <laughs> uh, and, and, and your colleagues. So thank you very much for that. And uh, we look forward to a lot of future collaborations and wonderful Absolutely. work. Thank you for the invitation.